Today's scripture reading comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christy, for reading God's word to us this afternoon. Hi, New Hope. It's great to see all of you. I want to invite you to open up, if you haven't already, to the book of James. If you have a Bible or a device that you can click open to, and if you don't have a Bible, there, there are Bibles. There should be one right in the rack in front of you. and You can use that to open up to the book of James. And we're going to look at chapter 5, these verses that Christy just read to us. James, the author of this letter, had a nickname. At least church tradition tells us that he had a nickname, and that nickname was Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Perhaps not a, not a super flattering nickname, but there was a reason behind it. You see, people said that James, this pastor, this wise old elder, had spent so much time over the years in prayer that, that his knees had started to become that's not a photo of him, by the way, but his knees had, had started to become so scarred and gnarly and knobby that uh, people called him camel knees. He had spent a lot of time in prayer. Now, now this, that might sound a little intimidating to some of us. You might start to feel like, oh, this is going to be one of those messages where I'm made to feel guilty for not praying enough or not praying more. The goal of this message, as is the goal of this uh, passage that James wrote to us, the, the goal of neither is to, to make us feel guilty. Instead, it's an invitation. It's a call, an urgent call to come to the Lord and pray. And pray. See, because although James had spent lots of time on his knees in prayer, he had not mastered the techniques of prayer. He wasn't some kind of next-level superhuman prayer guru. He was not an expert. In fact, as The late pastor Eugene Peterson once put it, there are no experts in the presence of Christ, only students. None of us is an expert. We are all students in Christ's presence, and that goes for James as well. He was a student of prayer. He just prayed, and he did that often, and he did it earnestly, and he sought to grow in prayer, and he wants to help us to do the same thing, because we can pray often and earnestly, and grow in prayer too. In fact, this passage is an invitation to do just that. It's, it's really a call for us to find what we need in God and from God. It's an invitation for us to, to draw near to him, and he will draw near to us, as James says back in chapter 4, verse 8. The context here, James, if you remember, if you were here last week, James is talking about suffering, He has been, at least. He's been talking about patience, endurance in the face of suffering. And he hasn't switched topics. He's really just adding to that topic when he comes here in verse 13 to talk to us about prayer. In fact, he says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James knows that suffering can drive you to stop talking to God. Suffering can drive you to grow maybe angry towards God, perhaps to just lose hope and see prayer as not only unnecessary but but useless. But what we need most when times get hard can only really come from God. James knows this. He's been talking to us about how we need wisdom to face adversity. We need patience in the face of suffering and oppression. We need steadfastness And only God can give us those things. In fact, if we want relief from our suffering, who can really relieve us from our suffering other than God? Only he truly can. 
And if we're not coming to him in the face of adversity, what's going to happen is we're going to start grumbling, James says. Grumbling against, not just against God, but against other people. We're, we're going to try to get vengeance when we've been hurt. Or perhaps we're just going to give up and give in altogether because the adversity just feels like it's too much for us. So you and I, we really do need to feel and we need to experience God's care for us in the midst of the, whatever adversity we're facing. And really, whether you've walked in here feeling beat up and worn out or not, you need to feel and experience God's care for you. And that's what we have here. That's what, that's what James, these words that James has written to us are meant to communicate to us. God's care. God's love. These words are talking to us. And James isn't just talking to people in pain here. Look what he says at the second part of verse 13. First he says, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. And then he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So wherever you fall on that continuum, you suffering? Are you cheerful? You somewhere in between? Many of us are somewhere in between. Or maybe we're both. He says, bring it to God. Through prayer or through singing praise. Sing to God. Talk to God if you're happy. Thank him. Worship him if you're happy. And, and why is James telling us to do this? I, b- I believe that, that it's because he knows that when things are going well, it's very easy for us to stop talking to God. You see, suffering can drive us away from God, but so can ease, so can comfort. We start to feel like there's no need to come to God. One scholar puts it this way. He says, times of ease and affluence beget complacency, laziness, and the assumption that we are able to ourselves cope with life, and God is forgotten. You see, if I can cope with life myself because things are so good, why do I need God? Another scholar says this. He said, a reminder to turn to God is even more needed in times of cheer than in times of suffering. He's saying we're even more likely to forget about God when things are going really well. I wonder if that resonates with you, if that's been your experience. When have you felt more close to the Lord? When have you felt more eager and and urgent about getting to God? Is it when things have gone really badly and are going badly and there's no hope in sight? Or is it when things just seem to go really well? fact is that when we sing praise to God, it reminds us that if things are going well, it's because he has ordained it that way. He's brought us into this season. He's the one who's led us into the green pastures, the one who's who's led us beside still waters when we sing to him. And the fact is that if, if you are in a season like that, like it feels like your life is just a big green pasture, everything just feels beautiful. When you sing in praise to God, especially in the community of God's gathered people with the church, you sing praise to him, you know what you're doing? You're actually encouraging people who are here whose lives are not like green pastures right now. Maybe they feel like it, their lives feel like more like a desert or more like scorched ground, like everything's just gone up in flames. Have you ever experienced this? I have. When I've come into this place feeling like I don't even want to be here, I'd rather be in a dark corner somewhere. And instead, I come here because I know the Lord has called me to and because I know I have to. And in the coming, and as I stand here and I sing with God's people and I hear people Sing about the goodness of God. And I hear you, brothers and sisters, sing praise to a good God. And I hear our worship team lead us to shout to the Lord. Something happens. I'm reminded of who he is. I'm reminded of how much he loves me. I'm reminded that I am not alone in a desert. Whether I'm in a desert or in a green pasture, he is with me. I wonder if you've experienced that too. Throughout this letter, James, he seems to alternate back and forth between giving counsel um, to people who are um, experiencing trials and suffering on the one hand, and then at other times talking to people who are experiencing affluence, people who are enjoying richness. He's talking to people who are suffering and people who are experiencing ease and comfort. And there's a reason he keeps going back and forth. You see, James is calling us to walk out our faith in Jesus in any and all circumstances. 
He knows that your ability to, to put faith into action, it's not contingent on your circumstances looking a particular way. See, some of us, if we are in a time of suffering, we may think, if things got better in my life, then I would be able to walk out my faith. Or others might think, things are too easy in my life. Maybe if I had a little bit of suffering, maybe if things got a little tougher, then maybe I would be more likely to walk out my faith and to more actively believe in Jesus. It may be true that your circumstances can influence the way that you're walking out your faith, but James knows that whether you're experiencing ease or you're experiencing suffering, both of those circumstances, they both have benefits and they both have liabilities. And so he shows us how to live lives in either type of situation, no matter what we're facing. Perhaps a better way to approach that or to state it is this. Alec Mottier, the author, says, We have a God for all seasons. And faith in Christ can be, must be, it can be lived out in all seasons and in all cultures and under all circumstances. John Calvin put it this way. James means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. If someone is suffering, he invites you to himself. If someone is cheerful, he invites you to himself. It's always, he's always calling us to him. Really what he wants for us is to live our lives in such a way that we're always angled towards God, right? We're always, always oriented towards him. So whether things are going really well or they couldn't seem to be going worse, we're oriented towards him, facing him, singing to him, praying to him, bringing whatever is on our heart to him whether we can do it with a smile on our face or whether we can barely get it out, we're just groaning it out and, and, and our faces are covered with tears. That same author, Alec Montier, said, in this, the voice of prayer and the voice of praise are at one. For alike, they say that the will of God is good. So whether you're praying, Lord, please help, please get me through this, or you're praising, Lord, you are good. Either way, you're facing God, and what you're confessing with your heart is, Lord, your will is good. I trust you. Help me to trust you more. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, praise. And really, praising is just a form of prayer, isn't it? When we sing together in the church, aren't we praying? I mean, we're talking, we're singing to each other. The book of Colossians says, the book of Ephesians says, we're actually singing to each other, but we're also singing to God. These are words of prayer. I was talking to a brother recently. We were talking about the book of Psalms. And we said, what are the Psalms? Are they songs or are they prayers? We said, yes, they are both. Songs, poems, prayers directed to God. So what James does in this passage is he shows us a little bit about how to pray. He gives us more information on how to pray. And, and here's what he tells us. First of all, he, said he wants us to pray with faith. Pray with faith. Look at verse 14. We'll read it again. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. First of all, this assumes, by the way, that Christians, followers of Christ, are part of a local church, and that they actually know their elders, like they know who the elders of that church are, so that they can call those elders to pray for them when they're laid up in bed and sick and can't even get out to the gathering of the church. The New Testament doesn't talk about Christians who are not functionally, actively living within a community of other Christians. It doesn't show up in the New Testament. What we see instead is people who are living as part of a larger community, a part of the church. And so when they're sick, they have someone to cry out to. They have brothers and sisters they can call out to. And in this case, James says, Call for the elders of the church to come and pray. And by the way, those elders are not coming to pray for that sick person because they are next-level prayer gurus. It's not because they are experts. They're coming, in fact, because they are representatives of the church. They're coming in, in, in their role as representatives of the whole body. So instead of the whole body gathering in your room to pray over you while you lay in bed sick, the elders come. And they're also coming because they've been called to be leaders of that church not experts in prayer, but willing prayers, 
active prayers, people who want to be raising your needs up before the Lord. In this case, it seems that what's going on here, James is talking to people who can't themselves even go to church to be prayed for or to pray with us. Maybe they didn't even, can't even pray for themselves, either because they're so physically beaten down or maybe they're just so emotionally and spiritually worn out. Have you ever felt like you're saying, I, I need someone to pray for me because I feel like I can barely get the words out of my mouth? God knows that at times we cannot even form the words we need to form to pray. That's why he tells us that the Spirit who is present in us takes those groans, takes those feelings, takes those guttural emotions, and, and, and communicates them to our Father. What he says, don't, don't, just, don't just stay on your own. Call out. Say, call to the elders to come and pray over you. And again, that, that, that term, to pray over, it indicates that this person is down and out. This doesn't mean that the sick person shouldn't use medicine or call a physician. Maybe that's obvious. I just feel like I need to say that because I think that that's been twisted at times. Certain sects within uh, Christendom have taken that passage and, and twisted it to mean that somehow you should be calling for people to pray. If you're real spiritual, you should be calling for people to pray for you. Don't, don't go to the pharmacy. Don't go to urgent care. Don't go to the emergency room. There's nothing further from the truth. The Bible recommends medicine. Some of the books of the Bible were written by a physician. The Bible has nothing negative to say about calling up a medical professional and getting help. But it's also saying to us, call the elders of the church to come and pray over you. Because there is power in faith-fueled prayer. There is power in faith-fueled prayer. Look at verse 15. It says, the prayer of faith will save. You see that? The prayer of faith will save. Prayer can save you. And it's that next clause that lets us know where that saving power comes from, where that healing power comes from. It says, the Lord will raise him up. You see that? So, so the power of prayer, it's not locked up in a particular technique or in particular words. If faith-fueled prayer possesses power, and it does, that power has its source in, in the object of the faith. It has its power in the Lord. He is healer. He raises up the one who's laid out. He resurrects the ones who are dead. Faith, faith believes that he can do it. And faith-fueled prayer asks him to do it with a believing heart. But it's the Lord who raises up. You see, there is power in prayer. Prayer is powerful, but where is that power located? It's located in the one to whom we pray and the one who calls us to pray, the one who is healer, who is redeemer, who is resurrector, the one who gives life. I said that, you know, the elders are not being called because they're experts in praying. And, and the fact is, I think, I think I should acknowledge this. There is, it is true that, that there are people within the church, people within God's kingdom, who are more skilled at praying. There's no doubt. Maybe it's because they're more experienced. Maybe it's because they've just given more time and thought and earnest um, uh, uh, effort to learning how to pray. Maybe it's because they've spent more time with Jesus saying, Lord, teach me to pray like the disciples did. And so they're, they're freer in prayer. Maybe they're better at praying than you are, than I am. Yes, that's true. But what James is calling us to here, this faith-filled prayer, it's not contingent on the skillfulness, the expertise of the one who's praying. And it's one of the reasons that God calls us to pray in community, within the community of the church, so that maybe if you, you, you're not that experienced in praying, maybe you feel like you pray and, and, and words barely can come out and, and, and you feel so far from God, but maybe you've got brothers and sisters in your life Brothers and sisters in this church who, can, who, who, who would be happy to pray with you. And maybe, maybe they have so cultivated a nearness to the Lord that you'd benefit tremendously from sitting with them and praying. Not because their prayers are better than yours, but simply because, because of, whether it's because of maturity or, or because of the, the, the depth of their relationship that they've cultivated with the Lord, they, they can... You can stand to learn something from these brothers and sisters. 
And we can benefit from praying with them. I was talking to a brother just earlier this week who was talking to me about how uh, the transformative experience he had praying with a missionary once. And, and he wasn't talking about the fact that this person seemed so skilled in prayer, that the techniques, the word, it all just seemed so polished and perfect and, and, and studied. No, it wasn't that. He said what really struck him was the simplicity of this woman's prayer, the way that she would just come before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. We're in trouble here. Will you please help us? But there was such a deep faith communicated in that that it transformed everyone else in the room. It, it, it fueled everyone else's prayers, even as it called upon God. Some people have said, it's not that prayer is powerful, it's that God is powerful. And I hear what you mean by that. I get that. I understand that. But I think that's maybe creating a false dichotomy here. Because James says, in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. There is power in the prayer, he says. But just recognize, church, where that great power comes from comes from the Lord who will raise up, from the Lord who hears and responds, from the very Lord who gives the faith to pray in the first place. As you read through this passage of James, it reads like the words of a man who knows what he's talking about, who has, who has seen firsthand what he's talking about. He's not, he's not just giving us theory here. As an elder in the first century Jerusalem church, you get the sense that he saw God heal in response to faith-filled prayer. And he's trying to convince us that you can see this too. There's two parts of the ministry, it seems, that these elders are engaging in. They're not just praying. It says they're praying and they're anointing with oil. We might ask the question, why? Why, is it, why are they anointing with oil? And it's interesting. If you look at what people make of this, they kind of tend to fall on, on one of two sides. There are folks who, who might say and have said, well, well, the oil that's being used here, it's, it's basically just medicinal. It's medicinal. And then others fall on the other end. They say, this oil that's being used here, it's magical. Some say it's medicinal. Some say it's magical. And the people who say it's medicinal, they're saying, well, you know, in the, in the ancient first century world, oils were sometimes used as medicine. And that's true. We can see that actually in the scriptures. Um, the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan takes uh, this person that he's, fallen on, uh, that he's found on the side of the road and treats this person's wounds, I believe, with, with, uh, with oils and herbs. You don't get any sense here that James is talking about medicine here, right? He's not saying um, anoint him with some bacitracin, with some neosporin, right? That's not, you don't get the sense that that's what's going on here. Or if you, if you come from some Latino homes, he's not saying, you know, anoint him with some Vicks Vapor Rub. It'll, it'll fix everything. Some of us believe that stuff has magical power, but James isn't saying that, right? He's not saying put some tiger balm on that. It'll, it'll be fine. But he's also not saying use some kind of magic potion. It's not magical either. Because some people fall on the other end of the spectrum and say there's something special about this oil. It's been consecrated. It's been uh, blessed. It's, it's holy oil. And I believe that what James is telling us falls on neither extreme. We look throughout the Old Testament, we see that oil was often used to anoint people symbolically to set them apart for service to God. Jesus Christ is called the anointed one. When kings were set apart, they were anointed. When other leaders, officials within the, whether religious officials or, 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 or state officials were set apart, they were anointed with oil. Also, we see that the, in the Bible that Oil sometimes serves as a symbol representing the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not that the oil itself contains the power or transmits the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it serves as a symbol of the power and the presence of the Spirit. That's what one scholar, Doug Moo, a wonderfully respected Reformed scholar in writing about James, says it's a symbol representing the healing power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the sick person and heal. God knows that we are, we are physical beings, right? And so we respond to the physical. And so in kindness to us, he says, elders, don't just pray over this person words, but use the substance, this oil that will communicate to this person in a felt way, in a, in a more tangible, experiential way. The Spirit is here and he's working. He's resting upon you and he can heal you. 
Let's ask him to do that. So some people would say, well, you, the oil needs to be there because it's, it's what heals. James says, no, 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 it's the Lord who raises up, not the oil. And some would say, well, that's the oil stuff. That doesn't matter. It's just superstitious. It's silly. Forget about it. James thinks enough of it to mention it here. It's part of the directive. And I believe we can't pick and choose what we want to obey and what we don't want to obey. I think that we stand in much better, a firmer ground when we simply say, hey, if James is calling me to do this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray, anoint with oil, and know that the power to save does not reside in the skillfulness of my prayer or in the potency of that oil, but in the God who can raise the dead to life. When we come to the table here later on, we're going to take bread and a cup that communicate to us eternal truths about what Jesus Christ has done for us. They communicate to us about the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, whose body was laid out and whose blood was spilled for us. And yet God uses these tangible items to communicate that to us. Isn't that interesting? He could just tell us, but he lets us touch this and feel it and drink it. When we see our brothers and sisters being baptized, or when you were baptized, when you professed faith in Christ, what, what, what was going on there? We, we often tell you the water has no power to raise you from death to life. The power has no, the water, that is, has no power to save you. And yet God uses this water. He says, do this. Baptize and let the water, let the very experience of going into that water and coming out and it dripping down your face remind you, show you, communicate to you my cleansing grace, my life-giving grace. But remember, the saving power is not in the water that we baptize in or the cup that we drink or in the oil with which we anoint. No. In fact, James says, how do we anoint? He says, anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Because it's the Lord who heals. It's not automatic. In fact, God may choose not to heal. No? God may choose not to heal. At least not precisely when we ask him to. So there's nothing formulaic or magical about this. Paul himself, the apostle, asked and asked again that the Lord would heal him, and God said, no, I've got other plans. I've got other purposes. Remember what James says back in chapter 4, verse 15. He's talking about making plans with our lives, but it applies to the matter of healing as well. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will be healed. You will be healed. Your loved ones will be healed if the Lord wills. It's the attitude of the heart that we're meant to walk through life with. It applies to our plans and it applies to our prayers, even prayers for healing. We ask, we believe, and we know he can do it. We also know and we accept that the Lord will do what he wills. And nothing is better than what he wills. That's part of what it means to pray faith-filled prayers. To pray knowing that he can do what you're asking him to do. In fact, you may even have a very deep assurance that he will do it. God sometimes gives us that depth of faith to believe this really is going to happen. He's really going to do it. And yet at the same time, faith-filled prayer says, what you discern to be best, I submit to, you are wise and you are good. Faith believes that the Lord can do the humanly impossible, and faith always submits to his will. We don't just believe in his power to act, we believe in his wisdom to know how to act. So faith never demands. Faith asks, and it submits. It submits. We're called to pray with faith. Pray with faith. Sometimes we may feel like our faith isn't all that strong. We're praying with a half belief, like the one who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I know you can do it. Heal my son. I believe, but help my unbelief. I've got both doubt and faith going on in my heart right now. Sometimes maybe you feel that way. Other times maybe you felt yourself filled with faith. John Piper says, and he's talking here about 1 Corinthians 12, he says, there is a faith that comes as a special gift at times to pray for something extraordinary. 
He says, sometimes God can give us a faith that's extraordinary, a deeper faith than we're usually used to, to that he will do something beyond what we've ever seen him do. And he's referring to, to 1 Corinthians 12, where it says that to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for common good. It's talking about spiritual gifts. And he says, for one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit. In other words, God gives gifts to different people at different times and for different purposes. And sometimes he gives this gift of deeper knowledge, of wisdom. Sometimes he gives this gift of faith by which we come to God and we pray with deeper belief and, and assurance and just conviction. He's going to do this. We don't always feel that way. So do we only pray for healing when we feel that way? Do we only pray for suffering to be relieved when we feel that way? No. No, we don't. Because Ephesians 3.20 tells us that we pray to a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. You see, his power and his willingness to heal, whether it's to heal physically, emotionally, spiritually, to bring transformation, his ability to do that is not contingent on the quality of our faith. Because he is able to do far more abundantly and we can ask or think. There are things that you have, you're afraid to ask for, he is able to do. James wants to inspire humble trust in us and, and, and a humble expectation. So let's pray for healing. Physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing. Let's pray, let's ask. If you or a loved one is laid up, sick, call the elders and we will pray over you as James has called us to in this way even as we entrust ourselves to the Lord who's able to do even more than we can ask or think. And that takes us pretty naturally into the second thing that James is telling us here. He says, pray with faith. He also says, pray with confession. Pray with confession. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. He says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We've got to ask the question here, what's the connection between sin and sickness here? Because there seems to be some connection, right? And what's the connection between confessing and being healed? What are those connections? Again, we can get this twisted, and I think a lot of people have twisted it. We want to make sure not to make those mistakes. Verse 15 doesn't mean that all illness, by the way, is a result of personal sin. I think that's the first thing we need to say. Just because someone is sick does not mean that they have sinned and brought this sickness upon themselves. I think we probably all believe that. But in moments of sickness, or we see someone else sick, I wonder if, if you've ever thought, oh, I wonder if they've brought this upon themselves because of, because of what a jerk they are. <laughs> Getting what they deserve. God's punishing them for the way they treated me, maybe, the way they treated others in my family. God says, look, there's no, there's no direct connection, at least no necessary connection between sickness and personal sin. He says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He doesn't say, because he's committed sins, he needs to be forgiven, all right? So whether it's the flu or it's cancer or it's COVID-19, we don't, we don't say, hey, this is being brought upon anyone because of their, their, their transgressions against God. I mean, last week we looked at the example of Job. James told us about the example of Job. And if we read that story, we have no reason to believe the error that, uh, that sin is what always brings on illness. Job, Job had walked righteously before God. Scripture does teach, on the other hand, that sickness does exist in the world because of sin. This is a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And if it weren't, there would be no flu and there would be no cancer and there would be no COVID-19 or whatever the next epidemic, pandemic is going to be caused by. There w it wouldn't exist if this world was not lost in sin. And furthermore, the Bible does say that there are instances, there are instances where there may be a connection between illness and personal sin. James makes that James, James seems to be implying that here. So that if you confess your sin in that moment of sickness, that confession will be connected with your healing. 
He's not the only one who talks about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, the Apostle Paul is talking about taking the Lord's Supper, as we're going to be doing a little later. And he's talking about the danger of taking this supper in an unworthy manner. He's saying if you're coming to this table, eating this bread, taking this cup, without proper consideration of what this all means, and you're doing it while you're persisting in sin against God and against other people in your community, in your church, you're actively, willfully not repenting from sin. You're not even giving thought to what's the, the, the gravity of this. You're going into it in an unworthy manner. He says that is dangerous. Not just for your soul, but for your body. In fact, he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's a major warning for us, and I think it's a timely warning given the fact that we're going to be taking the supper in just a few minutes. So, he says, if there's sin in your life and you're sick, confess it. But if there's sin in your life and you're not sick, (laughs) confess it. This is a a call to all of us, right? He's telling us confession is healthy. Not just for your soul, it's healthy for your body. James has talked earlier in this letter about how within the church there was conflict. People were speaking evil against each other. There was selfish ambition, criticism, judging, grumbling, fractured relationships. There was envy. So there was lots of confessing that needed to happen within this community. He's saying your your unwillingness to confess is hindering your prayer. It's keeping you from being able to see your prayers answered. Whether you're sick or or you're not. So he's saying if you're sick and you're calling for others to pray for you, this would be a great time for you to confess the sins that God's been convicting you of. The psalmist writes, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And Jesus says in Mark 11, whatever, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Confession is healthy. It's not just, I think what James here is talking about, he's not just talking about, and some scholars have said what he's talking about here is, he's saying there's so much conflict within this, within this community that he's writing to, that he's saying you better go and confess to one another. You've been envious towards each other. You've been showing partiality and discrimination. You've been judging and criticizing each other. Go confess that. Reconcile. I believe that's what he's saying. But he's also talking about more than that. Confessing sin is one of the major ways that God, one of the major tools that God's given us to actually have victory over sin, to put it to death and be freed from it. Have you ever had the experience where you you only started to feel some freedom and some victory over sin when you finally just let someone know about it? You, you, You put it out there, and all of a sudden, it wasn't just catharsis. Something, something major happened there. You're letting someone else in to know what's going on in your life. And it's a first step in many cases towards experiencing freedom against that sin. And in a community where there's selfishness and there's pride, there's judgmentalism and there's criticism and there's grumbling or there's envy or maybe there's hidden sin in a community like that, nothing helps like confession does. Not confessing to a priest, not confessing to me necessarily, but confessing to someone, either the person that you have hurt and offended or confessing your sin to someone who will help you overcome that sin. Confession, it it humbles, it, it softens us, doesn't it? It reminds us of just how needy we are. Confession, it deflates pride. And, and in many cases, confession deflates conflict. Conflict can't stand up to it sometimes. We stop accusing and stop pointing the finger at the failures of someone else in our lives and we just start opening up about our own failures and all of a sudden the conflict starts to grow weaker, dissipate. So pray with confession, he says. And then lastly, so pray with faith, he says. Pray with confession. And lastly, he says, pray with patience. Pray with patience. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Saw last week that patience involves waiting, but it also involves persistence. It involves endurance. It requires us to be steadfast. Now, James told us already to be patient here again. He's telling us, pray with patience. And the model of patient prayer here, it's Elijah. He tells us, Elijah, the prophet, you can read about him in 1 Kings. Elijah, he says, was a man with a nature just like ours. He's just like us. I love this because James could have given us this example of Elijah and said, just to to blow us out of the water, like, really, I need to live up to that guy? He says, no, 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 wait a second. He's just like us. And James doesn't say he's just like you. I'm in a whole other league. No, he says he's just like us. We're all in the same boat. We all have the same nature. You don't need to reach next level maturity to pray like Elijah did. You you don't need to, to reach some kind of next level spirituality to be able to ask for extraordinary things and and receive answers to those prayers. He was just like us. If he was righteous, and he was, he was righteous by grace through faith. He wasn't righteous because he had lived a perfectly righteous life. He was like Abraham, who James mentions earlier in his letter at the very beginning. Abraham was a man who was made righteous through faith, and yet he walked out that faith through obedience to God, through patient obedience to God. And that's what Elijah did. His faith worked itself out through prayer. He wasn't a superman. On the contrary, you read about Elijah. This man at points in his life was so weak. He was desperate. He was was discouraged and scarred. Alec Mautier says, I love the way he describes Elijah here. He says, Elijah could rise to the heights of faith and commitment and fall into the depths of despair and depression. He could be brave and then fly for his life at the whiff of danger. He could be selfless in his concerns for others and then be filled with self-pity. You see, Elijah was human. He was like us. And in and, 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 and First Kings, God shows us in, in First Kings just the the, the variety of ways that, he, that Elijah responded to his circumstances. Sometimes he responds like a hero, like a boss. Other times he responds like you just feel bad for him, like, oh my goodness, seriously, Elijah? I think I could do better than you in that situation. No, I couldn't. No, I couldn't. He prayed with prayer. There's a point in, in, in Elijah's life where he actually asked to die. We don't know if he was thinking of taking his own life. Maybe he himself was experiencing suicidal ideation. But regardless, he asks God, God, would you take my life? He goes from that degree of brokenness to at other times showing more faith than I think I could ever muster in my life. In fact, you know, it's funny. God never answered Elijah's prayer to die. He never died. He was taken up. Like, he ne- like literally never died. He was taken up by the Lord. <laughs> that was one prayer that God would not answer for him. <laughs> you know, the passage here, the way it says it in, in, um, in, verse, uh, in, verse 16, in verse 17, it said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. You know, the, the literal translation there, if you were to look at it, actually says he prayed with prayer that it might not rain. He prayed with prayer. And so some translators read that to mean, that means like he prayed like really, really excitedly, really urgently. And others say, no, it doesn't really mean that. It means he prayed by praying. Like he basically just prayed. There was nothing remarkable if you were to look at it. He just prayed. Like James and like us, Elijah was not an expert (laughs) There are no experts in the presence of Jesus. James could have given us other examples that would have been more impressive. 
He could have given us the example of Elijah when he prayed for fire to come out of heaven and burn up that that altar, if you remember that story. Or he could have given us the example of when Elijah prayed and God resurrected somebody. He used Elijah to bring someone back from the dead. But that's not the example he gives us. He gives us the example of when Elijah prayed for it to stop raining and it stopped. And then three years later, he prayed for it to start raining again. And the rain poured down. You can read about this in 1 Kings 17 and 18. And I believe the reason that God gives us this example here and not the others is because this particular example required lots of patience. Because Elijah had to go before a mighty king, Ahab, and say, it's not going to rain for three years because of your evil, because of your wickedness. God is going to judge. He's going to discipline you. And he goes away and he prays. But it would not rain for three years. And then for three years, every day, he had to keep believing it wasn't going to rain. And every day for three years, he had to look up the sky and say, I hope it doesn't start raining today. (laughs) I hope God really answers this prayer. He told me to pray it. I hope he answers the prayer. For three years, he had to believe it. Patiently, steadfastly, perseveringly keep praying and keep believing. And then after three years, he had to say, God told him, go up, get on your knees. The Bible says he put his head between his legs and he prayed, Lord, let the rain come. And he sent out his servant to go see if the rain had come, and it hadn't yet. And the servant came back, and he prayed some more. And 1 Kings 18 says that he sent his servant back and forth seven times to check if the rain was coming. Persistence, steadfastness, endurance. Keep sending his, his servant back until finally the servant says, there's a little cloud out there the size of the fist of a human fist. It's up there. That looks promising, no? And before you knew it, The sky had turned black and the rain came down. Elijah's example of prayer here is meant to show us what patient, persistent calling upon God looks like. He kept waiting for his God. Elijah is one of those suffering prophets that James mentioned last week. His life had been threatened. We need steadfastness and endurance to to pray the way he did. But as I close, I want you to think about one more thing here, and then we'll close. Remember earlier in chapter 5, James told us to wait for the coming of the Lord. He says in James chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Then he says in verse 8, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Right? So what's James talking about? Wait for Jesus to come back. Wait for Jesus to come back. Now all of a sudden here he's talking about praying for healing and telling us that the Lord can raise us up. Chapter 5, verse 13. If anyone among you is suffering, let him praise. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing and praise. Sing praise. And in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. James wants us to read those words. The Lord will raise him up in at least two different ways. He wants us to realize that when we come before the Lord and pray for healing, in faith, faith faith-fueled prayer can save, it can rescue, the Lord can show up and raise you up now. Unexplainably and miraculously. And he's calling us to believe that and to pray like it's real, because it is. But remember, he's also talking to us about waiting for the coming of the Lord. And so he's also telling us, listen, even if The Lord chooses not to raise you up now. When he returns, he will save and he will raise you up. You see, does the child of God have a guarantee of healing? Yes, he does. Yes, she does. Child of God, you have the guarantee of healing. Whether now or when the Lord returns. Whether when the prayer is prayed, and the anointing takes place, and the prayers are lifted up before God, or, or, because the day of the Lord is at hand, when he returns, he will save, he will raise you up. That's the outlandish promise that we get to walk through life with. That those that you have lost to cancer, to accidents, to murder, and to war in the Lord will be raised up. To those in the Lord now who are hobbled and bedridden and broken, you will one day 
dance and run and you'll leap before God. And either it's going to happen within the next few days or months or it's going to happen when the Lord returns. One way or the other, it will happen. Every emotional scar and wound will be healed. Every last vestige of trauma will be healed either now or in the day of the Lord. So right now, he will heal if he wants to. Or he will tell us to wait. But more than that, we have the promise right now that if we come to the Lord in prayer, he will give us deep spiritual wholeness. He will give us all the forgiveness and all the cleansing we need. If you have never prayed, I want to invite you to pray, even if it's for the first time, to receive Jesus as Lord, to pray for his forgiveness. There are people here at the end of the service. They'll be here up front and on the sides to pray with you if you'd like them to pray with you, to pray over you. Jesus is ready to receive you. You see, because when Jesus is your Lord, that may not take all the affliction in your life away, but it will transform the way you experience all of that affliction. He will make you righteous. James says the prayer of a righteous man has great power. Listen, none of us is ultimately righteous, not in ourselves. But Jesus is, and yet he died like a sinner. He died like an unrighteous criminal. In fact, he took on the guilt of everyone who would believe in him. So if you will believe in him, he will give you his righteousness. If you pray to receive him as Lord, if you give yourself up to him, and listen, once he is yours and you're his, that gives you open access to God through prayer any time of day, any day of the year. And it gives you the promise that one day, once and for all, you will know perfect healing. Please pray with me. Lord, give us faith to believe in your every promise. Give us faith to believe in the power of prayer because we know the one who answers prayer. We look to you, not to ourselves, not to our skill, ability, spiritual maturity, or techniques, or anything. We look to you, and we say, Lord, give us the faith to pray extraordinary things and to expect you to do extraordinary things. And as we come to this table in just a moment, some of us, Lord, may be suffering. Some of us might be cheerful. But as we come to this table, whether we come confused about what's going on in our lives or we come up here praising you, We ask that you would show us that this is a table for all who have put their faith in you and are depending in you, and you are inviting us to draw near. In Jesus' name, amen.